You don't need to be a bioengineer to help change the shape of humanity. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Welcome to Trillions. I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Balchunas. Eric, I'm on vacation. I can tell. You sound far away. It sounds like I'm at the beach, right? (laughs) Yeah. My toes are in the sand. You're dedicated. How's it going? You know, I I had to talk to you, and that's why I wanted to join, because did you know that we're in the midst of a trade war? I did. I noticed that, yeah. Uh, You can't look at Twitter or read the newspaper. It's been making headlines. Yeah, it's making headlines, to say the least. So trade wars don't rest for your vacation, I guess. (laughs) No, I I have to call to talk to you about how investors are dealing with this trade war. It's become the theme of the year. Yeah, that and rising rates, although rates have kind of flat uh, flatlined a little bit. Um, rates are boring compared to trade wars. They are. And that's why, uh, but they have moved a lot of flows. But I will say if there's one sort of macro event, it's it's trade wars, trade tensions. Although, let's face it, some of it's probably an overreaction in the headlines and from the media. And I think this is a great opportunity to not only look at something that's happening in real life, Talk about how uh, investors are reacting to it or how they should or should not react and trying to parse out what really matters versus what sort of like the crazy outrage of the week. And there's no better time to do this because obviously things have shifted from being rhetoric to reality now. And we're, we're looking at full on tariffs. So uh, to help us uh, understand the trade war, we're joined by two guests, Sarah Ponzik, who's on the cross asset team here at Bloomberg News. And also John Davey, who is a portfolio advisor at Astoria. They're both going to give us um, different views on what's happening and also sort of like how investors are dealing with it. Yeah, I mean, I suggested both of them because Sarah wrote this article, uh, basically your guide to playing the trade war. And it goes over a couple different things that she's seeing. Sarah talks to people. She looks at the data and she writes about it. She can tell us what she's seeing and, and uh, hearing. John literally is putting people's money to work using ETFs. And he has to read what Sarah writes and other people and look at the news and the Twitters and, and everything and take it all and, de- and decide what to do with real money on the line. John has skin in the game. So we have the best of both worlds, in my opinion. On this episode of Trillions, your guide to the trade war. Sarah, John, welcome to Trillions. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having us. Uh, Sarah, you wrote this article that was really, really great, An Investor's Guide to Managing Escalating Global Trade Tensions. So it's a great uh, Bloomberg News headline, too. Can you give us a sense of of what you've been covering and, and what you've been watching unfold? Of course. It's kind of been an evolution in a way, as you were just discussing. At first, it seemed it was just rhetoric. But now we're actually getting these tariffs. So day by day, week by week, it's really starting to feel a bit more real. So 
I have been talking with money managers for the past couple months as this really has been developing to see what they're doing, if they're concerned, if they're actually moving money around. And for a while, that answer was always no. The answer was always no, we're going to reach a negotiation. We're going to get a deal. We're standing pat. We're really not doing anything differently right now. But as the weeks went on, as as we got further down the timeline, all of a sudden, concern started to seep into their tones of voices. And all of a sudden, they started advising, okay, well, if this gets a little further, this is what you should do. This is what you should do. And then we actually started to see some movement within the flows and some people actually telling me that they're moving money around. So I would say it started off when I would ask them, all right, if this actually develops, if this actually gets pretty bad, what are you going to do? The classic answer was always, all right, go to small cap stocks because they're more domestically oriented. If we're in a trade war, the U.S. stands to benefit. So you're better off if you're in the U.S. So make America great again. What does that uh, look like from a flow perspective and a return perspective so far this year? So from a flow perspective, it's actually interesting because one of the largest uh, small cap ETFs, I know Bloomberg Intelligence had a great deck out recently about this saying that there were actually outflows from small caps ETFs uh, in the past week or so. However, it was still a lot less than U.S. equities at large. And if you look at the Russell 2000, I mean, the Russell 2000 has just been on a tear this year. It's really been outperforming uh, the S&P 500 and broader equity markets at large. So we are seeing that. I mean, we're, we're seeing small caps outperform and we are seeing a little boost there at being a little better uh, than larger U.S. equity flows. The Russell's at like an 8% uh, return so far this year versus the S&P, which is at about 2%. Exactly. S&P is like muddling around, moving sideways around that 2,700 number. And then Russell 2000 is up 8%. So really seeing some strength there relatively. So that's where they're going. Eric, when you look at the small cap stuff, how are you seeing? What are you seeing? Ironically, small caps appear somewhat like a safe move. Normally, they're the jumpier ones. But what I will say is in, in the second quarter, it was unusual that small caps took in $13 billion. That was more than double any other cap size. And the uh, note that Sarah's referring to was that for the first time in a long time, they saw a week of outflows. And so the question remains is, if small caps are, are, are if small caps stop getting investors' interest and attention, that's not good. That's a, a overall bad sign because they've been the one sort of equity area to A, be bullish, but B, also play the, or protect from the trade war, quote unquote. Um, so let's bring in John on this. Talking small caps, let's say you're out there, you own a small cap ETF or you're thinking about going into it. How would you look at, at this area going forward? Well, I think, uh, so if you own small caps, I think that's a pretty good place you know, for the time being. Um, but I, I'm going to take the other side of that trade about how trade wars is the reason why the market's selling off. Um, trade wars is not what's driving the market. That That's my point and that's what we've been arguing is that You've got things like, you know, the Fed is hiking rates. You've got, you know, no more QE in the U.S. Uh, and soon to be stopping in uh, Europe. Uh, you've got global growth. That's the coupling, right? U.S. is up, you know, as you said, Russell 2000 is up 8%. You've got China that's down 20%. EM that's, you know, down, you know, 14% year to date. So I think, you know, like if you watch the news, you're always going to be scared. You're never going to want to invest. I think small caps is a good place to kind of, you know, park your money just because, you know, I think a lot of Trump's policies is beneficial for domestic orienting companies. But for us at Astoria, we've been defensively positioned in the portfolio for most of this year. This was a big call that we made earlier in the year, uh, at, well, at the start of the year. 
So our premise was that, you know, we expected this year to have a lot more volatility. We thought that, you know, there was a lot more uncertainty this year with what the Fed is going to do. So we've been more defensive in general. So if you own small caps, I think that's a good trade for you. I think it's been a good investment, and I would I would probably hold on to that. And let me jump in here back to Sarah. In terms of the small cap ETFs, if you noticed IJR is in the top 10. That's Most people know small caps IWM, which is the iShares, the most traded one, or VB, which is Vanguard. But IJR is number nine. To talk about within the small cap space, what, what kind of ETFs are seeing the action? So the ETFs that are seeing the action are the ones that are actually being used as more sort of a, a trading vehicle. So if you want to get into the action. I mean, we're seeing heavy trading volume. We're seeing people wanting to get in and get out, maybe uh, make some some quick moves using these ETFs. And that's really how we're seeing it play out there. So IWM clearly takes the monster of the flow volatility. That's the one that's been around forever. But it's the fee is, I believe, 20 basis points. I'll find out in two seconds here. But John, in terms of picking a small cap ETF, if you're out there listening, like how do you actually do this? IWM is 20 bips. And then you've got ones that are 10 and even a little less. Do you prefer going to the sort of cheap, low-cost Vanguard or iShares Core Series, or do you like the the liquidity of an IWM? We, I would prefer something like an EES or an IJR. So those are more wow. Those EES. This is why we, look these ETF strategists. They sniff through the whole toolbox. That's that's why we have them on. <laughs> I don't even know what EES is. What is okay, that? that's the Wisdom Tree Earnings uh, Weighted uh, ETF. So basically, first of all, they take like a, a quality filter. So you have to have like four quarters of like positive earnings. And then they weight the stock in the index based on its earnings. So the more earnings you produce as a company, the higher the weight. So it's like a super higher quality uh, ETF. If you go back, you, you probably have your terminal up. But if you go back, EES has completely killed... IWM since its inception. And, you know, my point is like, okay, EES may cost you 35 basis points. IWM is maybe, wow. you know, 15. But I'm sure if you look, I don't know what the yeah, stat is, but no, it's something it's, like 200%. Yeah. EES is up 243% to IWM's 164. That's 78 percentage points difference. It is a little pricier, but it's not bad, especially when you're comparing to an active fund. It's 38 basis points. But you're right. It, it's small caps, but with a little of the edge taken off and a little tilt towards... That's like a toy at the bottom of the cereal box. <laughs> <laughs> Cracker Jack box. Are, are we that old that we remember that? I do. At I, I remember that. I remember that. that. Okay. You, okay you, good you, find. Okay, good. All right. <laughs> Quality usually works over time as a, like, you know, as a factor, and we don't have to go into like a factor-based discussion, but I think people get enamored about low costs, and you know they want to buy the cheapest product out there, and... I think you got to look underneath the hood a little bit when it comes to ETF, just because there's so many products out there. So EES is one of those like hidden gems if you like small caps. And that's a good point. I mean, what, 38 to 20 or 10, that's 18 basis points. If you had picked EES, though, that's 7,800 basis points. So I agree with you. I, I think, though, when you go pure sort of plain vanilla, like the S&P 500, you really should look for the lowest cost. But when you go to these other areas, you can possibly do your homework a little and find a hidden gem. Absolutely. Okay, Sarah, what's the what's the number two thing that you um, focused on in this article? So a lot of people started talking about, if you're worried, 
get defensive. And John was talking about how maybe not even just because of trade, but they were starting to shift to a more defensive position at the start of the year for even other reasons. But when they talk about defensive equities, a lot of them say, all right, well, you look for your toothpaste and your diaper companies, because if something bad were to happen, at least you know that people always need those types of products. So go to your consumer staples. And for me, I did. I I was curious because it seemed like there was a shift in tone when we got to June. So I was really curious what the flows looked like in June versus the rest of the year. And we definitely saw a major shift. So if you look at XLP, which is State Street's consumer staples sector fund. So XLP actually had the, the most outflows from January to May this year. XLP, I mean, consumer staples as a whole, have really just been struggling. So they saw $773 million in a loss from January to May. However, in June, that completely flipped. And if you look at the entire suite of those sector funds, XLP actually took in the most money out of any of them. It saw $583 million in inflows in June. So I was just curious. I was looking through the data, and it did take a bit of time, and I was worried maybe I would not find anything. Uh, but I thought it was really interesting that I had noticed that shift in tone from the rest of the year until June, and people were actually starting to say that they were concerned maybe they were going to shift money around. And what you know, XLP went from the worst to the best, flows-wise. XLP, by the way, is it really is a boring ETF. I mean, <laughs> Coca-Cola, Colgate-Palmolive, Walmart. Um, in terms of the performance, by the way, just so people know, in the past 10 years since the financial crisis, basically, XLP's trailing tech, or XLK, by 121 percentage points. Tech is over 25% of the S&P 500 staples is a mere 6.8%. John, could we see a whole new regime where XLP becomes the stud and XLK lags? Uh, All the holdings you mentioned just kind of remind me of Warren Buffett, just as a total aside. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I think what you're going to start to see is people kind of getting more defensive in their portfolio, given what's going on with all the kind of macro news. So um, here's the other thing, right? If you own a market cap weighted index, right, or an ETF, you are indirectly, you know, long tech, right? Because tech is like 25% of the S&P 500, and you may not know, but you are a tech uh, kind of investor, right? And I think now, given everything that's going on in the cycle, you know, now is a decent time to kind of get more defensive in, in, in general. As a total aside, you know, one ETF that we moved into this year is QEMM. So we owned IEMG last year. It's the Emerging Market ETF. Five stocks drove 50% of the returns in, I, in IEMG in 2017. And this year... You know, we just didn't want to make a big bet on five stocks, you know, five Chinese internet stocks. So this year, QEMM, a little bit more defensive, and it's outperformed IENG by like 1.8%. Doesn't sound like huge, but, you know, you start to kind of get, you know, a couple hundred basis points, and it's outperformed on lower volatility, like 25% lower volatility. And what were the holdings that that you wanted to uh, access there? The holdings are very similar to IEMG. It just doesn't overweight. So Samsung may not be like 5% like it is in IEMG. You know, it may only have like a 2% weight. So it's a a little bit lower vol, um, more defensive, you know, more value in quality stocks. So, and John brings up a good point. This is sort of the same concept as EES applied to emerging markets in that when you go to emerging markets, most people use what's called the market cap weighted ETF. That's EEM, IEMG, the ones you mentioned. And a lot of times, the top 10 holdings can make up almost half of the portfolio, at least 30%. When I look at QEMM, the top 10 holdings only make up 16% of the portfolio. That's an underrated field, isn't it? Percentage of top 10 holdings, yeah. 
And that also comes down to waiting. And when you look at an alternative waiting, you could go the other way, though, and have an equal waiting, which gives a little more vol. In this case, you have a quality screen on this. Um, even though it's less concentrated, the quality screen takes that edge off, which doesn't make it extra have extra volatility. So it's an interesting pick. QEMM, it's the Spider product. It's a multi-factor approach to emerging markets. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Okay, uh, John, can we just go a little bit more meta about how you as an investor, how you've been dealing with the trade war as it transitioned from being rhetoric to reality? Sure. Um, you know, we're longer term investors. So I think, you know, look, Trump's approval ratings keep rallying and keep going up as this trade rhetoric kind of spikes up. So I, I don't think he's going to back down per se. Now, I'll caveat by saying, you know, we're not experts in trade wars. So, you know, we tend to focus on like data and what's going on in the economy. And I think there's some bigger picture issues that are driving the market. So one is, as I mentioned earlier, the Fed is hiking rates. Two, you've had this, you know, decoupling, you know, from U.S. and the rest of the world in terms of global growth. Uh, I think inflation's rising. And, you know, I think that's really what's driving the market. Like, you know, yeah, the media is going to talk about whatever's hot for that day. But, you know, there's other big and dri- bigger driving forces that uh, are impacting the market. So to answer your point, Joe, you know, we've been uh, increasing cash. So cash, I think, is a really interesting alternative at this point in time, right? The two years yield in like, you know, 2.5%. So you take on no credit risk, no, du- you know, very little duration risk. So I would much rather own like a SHY than let's say like an HYG. Like why take on the extra credit risk and the extra duration risk for, for high yield credit? SHY, which is an apropos ticker for something that holds one to three year treasuries. It is shy. It's when you're feeling shy, you go into this thing. And SHV, these are making the top 10, top 20 flow list and they're they're boring. Uh, these are ultra short term debt, which is used for cash. Talk about the amazing inflows into ultra short term debt this year. Look, you say they're boring, but the thing is they're safe. And if you are worried about anything, even if it's a trade war, if you're just worried about where we are in the cycle, maybe that's where you want to park your money. And that's what we're seeing. We are seeing some major flows into short-term debt. And as well as short-term debt, we're also seeing some huge inflows into the 10-year Treasury bond ETFs as well. So GOVT, which is the iShares product, it's the largest U.S. Treasury bond tracking U.S. Treasuries. In June, it took the most cash on record, the most it's ever taken in in a month. It took in about $870 million. So we're seeing money into short-term debt. And then, of course, the 10-year as well is getting a lot of traction. John, as that's, GOVT is 15 basis points. As an, as an investor, when you say cash, right, a lot of people think a money market fund. Can ETFs like this be used in place of a money market fund and in, in, in like short, ultra short-term treasury ETF? Are people starting to do that? I think so. I mean, I think if you look at G-Bill, that's been another kind of uh, big inflow. Um, you know, I think they got like $700 million, you know, just in the last you know year. If you look at JPST, that's a short duration uh, fund from JP Morgan. They've raised a lot of assets. So, I mean, you know, the thing with, when you buy a money market fund is that, you know, you buy it at NAV, you don't pay bid offer, you don't pay commission cost. 
Um, you know, there's no slippage, right, when you purchase that. Whereas, you know, when you buy an ETF, you know, there are extra costs, right? That's the thing that, you know, most people don't realize. So in light of, you know, the news about Vanguard cutting all ETF, you know, the 1700 ETF, most people don't, aren't aware that, you know, there are extra costs when you purchase an ETF. As I mentioned, bid offer, you know, there's market impact costs. So I think just because people love ETFs, right, they're like a hot product. And, you know, now like the end investors starting to see on TV that, hey, ETFs are a good product. So I think advisors are increasingly using more things like JPST and GBIL or Gov in place of, let's say, a money market fund. And just to follow up on the ultra short-term debt ETFs, they've taken in $18 billion this year. That's 35% organic growth, and that puts them at uh, almost 10% of all net flows this year. They only make up 1% of the assets. So a huge year for those ETFs. And I think going to cash and, and using a little cash, it, it's hard to argue with that. These other ways of trying to outthink all this, but you know, cash, nothing wrong with that. And that's, I think, what a lot of people are coming to the conclusion of. That's the biggest argument. Uh, well, one of the big arguments against equities, right, is that, you know, a lot more volatility, extremely late cycle. You've got trade wars, Fed hiking rates. And so, you know, at 2%, it's not a bad investment anymore. And and John, what percentage have you sort of shifted into cash over the past few months? Somewhere between like the 5 to 7% range. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it was hard to own cash, right, the last, you know, five, six years, right, because the market kept on going up. Whereas, you know, now, you know, a lot more choppier in, uh, markets, right? So your opportunity cost is, uh, you know, is very different now than it was a couple of years ago when every single year the market was going up. And what do you, what do clients come to you asking about regarding the trade war? What are the long-term implications, which I think are very, very difficult to figure out? Um, here's the thing, right? Everyone thinks they're an expert on trade wars all of a sudden, right? We're certainly not. We're more experts in terms of building a portfolio, uh, doing macroeconomic research, quantitative research. So we tend to invest where there's like a margin of safety. And that's kind of what we tell investors is like, okay, we're investing for the long run. It's very hard to pick it to determine what's going to happen in the short term. And, you know, trade wars is something that, uh, you know, is very unknown from a long-term uh, perspective. Here's the other thing, Joel, right? China owns over a trillion dollars of U.S. government securities, right? It's about 30% of all uh, outstanding debt, right? So Trump is playing chicken with China. And I think that's a very, very, you know, uh, very, very difficult thing to to figure out, you know, the political posturing and, and what's going to happen. So, Again, given we're not experts in that space, we try and you know have very diversified portfolios, increase cash, use alternatives, use gold, and uh, you know that that'll help and it has helped smooth out our uh, portfolio volatility. Can you speak a little bit about what it's like to do a portfolio shock test in the midst of all this? What do you what do you look for when you guys do that? Typically, a lot of the software will will we'll use will say, okay, what happened with the current portfolio in a you know OA crisis what happened during you know a shock in interest rates when you know interest rates spiked when let's say Bernanke mentioned that he was going to stop QE this was back years ago what happened to the portfolio when the US treasury debt was downgraded so you know our software will just play take the current portfolio and just kind of identify major drawdowns over the last you know 10 15 years and say okay here's how the portfolio would have done in those instances and how much of your time is spent looking through the ETFs to figure out the EESs and the QEMMs of the world, which are perfect fit for you? 
you know, that's that's really where I think we have the most value is like, okay, looking, you know, under the hood of these ETFs. And you do a lot of that yourself, Eric. You have uh, great research. And, you know, look, we're saying to investors, okay, you know, it's great. ETFs have democratized investments and they're cheap and they're basically given to you for free. And now you can trade them on Vanguard for free. But, you know, someone's still got to do their research and figure out, okay, is EES better than IWM? Is QEM better than, you know, IEMG? And our vantage point is that there are huge differences in those ETFs. So portfolio construction is uh, a big value add from, from our perspective. When you're looking at potential shocks, does the trade war or the rhetoric factor in at all? Does that come on your radar as a potential shock yeah, that's an interesting question. So no, the software doesn't model back uh, in time, okay, what happened during previous trade wars? Because as long as I've been working, I don't really think we've had a trade war of this magnitude. So uh, that's that's a great question. And I think that's why markets are a lot more volatile, Joe, is that you know we, this is new, right? And markets don't like uncertainty. So everyone keeps trying to model for, okay, what happens in a 50% drawdown in 2008, a 50% drawdown in you know 2000? And obviously, you know, no one kind of thinks about, you know, kind of trade wars and what's happened in in history in, in that respect. Especially because, I mean, the dynamics at play here between emerging markets and China, uh, all of that stuff is sort of different than all the other dynamics that we've ever had. It is. Yeah. Although I, I do think that, you know, the bigger picture that, you know, kind of we keep on talking about from, from a story's perspective is that, you know, the decline, liquidity, inflation rise in, the Fed behind the curve global growth, the coupling. I mean, those are things that have that has happened over time. And that's start, sort of, you know, kind of what we do in terms of like the portfolio stress testing and seeing, okay, what has happened during other similar periods from that perspective. Okay, so last thing we want to hit on commodities. Sarah, what, what did you learn as you were working on this story? So there's an overarching view and there is sort of a an argument here, but there's an overarching view that if a trade war were to really escalate, that could be inflationary. So if we do get inflation, where might you want to go? And some people say commodities because if prices rise, maybe that's a place you want to be. So a lot of people are saying maybe commodity-related equities or commodity-related ETFs. Sticking with that spider select sector suite of funds, XLE, very similar. In the beginning of the year, well, for the first couple of months of the year from January to May, XLE lost about 44 million dollars. However, in June alone, it took in $419 million. And of course, there are a lot of other moving parts going on with oil and in the energy space right now. But some people have said that is maybe somewhere you want to be. But you do also have to be pretty careful because a lot of the back and forth that's going on is hitting soybeans and hitting other areas of the commodity spectrum. And we've seen tons of trading within DBA, which is the Invesco DB Agriculture Fund, people getting in and out of there trying to figure out where you might want to be related to tariffs. Um, So yeah, I mean, in a general sense, commodities, if if there's inflation, you might want to be there for a bit of protection or to position yourselves. But there's a chance that it might be deflationary as well, or or, or instead, right? Right. There's a bit of an argument there. I think... uh, Overall, most people I speak with talk about it actually being inflationary, but you do hear the other end of it as well. And there's a bit of an argument, people saying, well, it could actually be deflationary. So you have to be careful there. Which kind of goes to what John was saying earlier of like, we've never really had a trade war like this before. You can't model it. Let me just break down a couple things here because 
DBA, so there's three kind of ways to play commodities with ETFs. I, this needs to be clarified. XLE, which was mentioned earlier, is equities that are in the commodities business. So that's going to perform a lot like the stock market, but also like oil in that case, uh, mixture. Then there's ones that hold futures, like DBA holds agricultural futures. That will give you pure exposure to those futures, but there's some roll costs that retail investors may not understand, and that can be like a corrosion on the returns. Then there's physically backed commodities, which is essentially precious metals like gold and silver, which store it in a vault. Um, John, given what Sarah said, what are you doing with commodities, and what which version of those types of ETFs are you moving into? So we like commodities. We've said uh, in the beginning of the year that you know we thought on the we thought the inflation would rise, and we thought that commodities were really cheap on their own, um, and they're an attractive diversifying the portfolio, right? So it's kind of like it's been marching to its own beat. So U.S. equities are up four hundred percent since two thousand nine. Commodities are basically flat, right, since two thousand nine. So. You know, we own the um, futures-based uh, ETF, so we own uh, COMB. Um, that's the broad-based uh, Bloomberg Commodity Index. So it's a third allocated towards energy and oil, a third allocated towards agriculture, and a third allocated towards metal. Now, they've been negatively impacted with the trade wars, um, Sarah, to, to your point on your article. So, you know, year-to-date, it's down like, I think, 90 bips. But here's the thing, right? The range of volatility for equities has been massive this year, right? Think about like, you know, we S&P was up 6% in January, then it was down 6%. And we've had these massive swings. Commodities, although it's down for the year, not up like S&P, 2-3%, as you mentioned, it's had a lot less volatility. And so that's kind of like it works really well in the portfolio to have some commodity allocation. So this one's actually holding actual commodity futures. So in our traffic light system, we do give it a red light. Because to understand holding futures, and as they get to near expiration, you have to buy a new one, there can be um, extra costs in doing that over and over and over. How do you account for that? Do you accept what that cost might be? I know that's not always a cost. Sometimes you gain money from the roll, but usually it is. How do you factor that into your purchase of this ETF? It's a great question. So the ironic thing is that, you know, in the last, you know, four or five years, you've had a pretty big cost, right? So that erosion that you talked about, this year, you actually get a benefit from rolling those futures. So it's kind of like a tailwind, per se. Um, but, you know, look, that can change, right? And and as an investor, like, you may not know what's going on in the, you know, the energy oil market and if, if the futures are working for you or against you. So, you know, I don't, I, I kind of agree with your tra- traffic light system. Although, you know, temporarily right now, it's, uh, it's um, you know, tailwind. So one thing this all brings up, in my opinion, is the White House, no matter who's in office, whether it was Obama, Trump, Bush, makes a lot of news. And it, it's something that's very easy to rotate all the articles around because everybody's watching it and it's got a, it is a macro influence. But let's face it, like under Obama, uh, clean energy did not – it did awful. And that was supposed to be the way to play Obama – And then defense and banks did really well under Obama. Who would have thought that? So is it is it bad investing to actually, you know, try to trade or invest around who's in office and what they're saying and doing? How much do you actually take into account? Uh, Earnings, most important, right, because earnings is what drives, you know, kind of stock prices. 
Uh, I think you have to look at the economy of which, you know, presidents are impacting that. But we tend to look at like what's going on with earnings and stocks. And that usually drives, you know, kind of what happens. So, you know, Obama doesn't get enough credit, right? But the market did rally over 300% while he was in office, right? People make it seem like, oh, you know, Trump's now kind of this bull market. But, you know, we had a bull market. We had actually one of the best bull markets when Obama was in office. So, And how do you, uh, Sarah, juggle this this idea of earnings, which I'll face it, aren't that interesting sometimes? <laughs> <right>? <laughs> they matter. Versus, you know, Trump's tweets and and what to like kind of put that into the mixture of like articles. I mean, earnings are the number one most important. And that's what have been the bedrock of this bull market and the bedrock of what's been holding stocks up so far this year. Every time I talk to an investor and I ask them, all right, well, now maybe are you a little bit worried? What are you thinking? Well, they keep saying fundamentals are good. Earnings looks good. So we should be fine. However, what I will say is that we're going to be getting in to earnings season. And now what it's really going to be about is that forward guidance and listening to those calls, listening to the executives. Because if we hear executives get on those calls and start saying that their business might be affected by these tariffs, that could actually maybe send us lower. But on the other hand, We've been really struggling to punch higher. And if we get through earnings season and no one expresses concern about these tariffs, that could be what also ends up getting us higher. So they matter. But it's also about that anecdotal evidence and what these executives are saying. If ever in doubt, just follow kind of what Warren Buffett, you know, last time I checked, he was, you know, worth $80 billion. I mean, he looks at <laughs> earnings. He looks at what's going on with the company, you know, really kind of goes deep into like the analysis of like the stocks that he owns. And he owns, you know, super high quality stocks, you know, super valued kind of oriented uh, companies. So that is a great way to end it. I think, you know, everything that was said here was very, really interesting. People do want to trade, but ultimately, and we see it in the flows. A lot of the flows just go to just plain vanilla allocating, but you definitely see a slight shift to defense and cash uh, type ETFs this year. Guys, thank you so much for coming on today. Joel, thank you so much for calling in on your uh, family fun vacation. By the way, you can only have two of those three things. That's what they say. Family fun vacation. Pick two. Joel, which two are you having? (laughs) I'm getting the family and the fun, I guess, because I got you. (laughs) Well played, sir. (laughs) All right, John, Sarah, thanks so much for joining us on Trillion. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, and wherever else you want to listen. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weber Show. He's at Eric Balchunas. And you can find our guest at Sarah Ponzik. That's P-O-N-C-Z-E-K. And you can find John at Astoria Advisors. Trillions is produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcast. Bye. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.